to us. Um, that there's nobody like you. That you deserve all the glory, all the praise, all the worship. You sit enthroned in your heaven, which not even the heavens can contain you. Um, you're completely independent. You're absolutely sovereign. You're righteous and holy in every way. You're completely divine. You are incredible, amazing. And it is only by the fact that you were also good and gracious that we can come to you and approach you. That you as being the independent, sovereign king over all things, allow us to have fellowship with you. And I think we take that a little too lightly all too often. We think too little of you, we think too lightly of you, we don't think often enough of you, we don't revere you as we should, and I think that's reflected in a lot of the ways that we casually approach you and come to you. And so, Lord, I pray today that while you are transcendent and set apart and holy and righteous in every way, and we are obviously none of those things, we would have a healthy balance between our reverence and our awe and our worship of you and who you are, but also have this gratitude, this humble thankfulness of worship that you actually invite us and call us into fellowship with you. So we thank you, Lord, for those truths, and we thank you for this time that we have as we're gathered together to look to you today and now. As we look to our king and we, we consider his kingdom and the relationship of the church to your kingdom, Lord. We love you. We thank you for your love for us. And we pray these things in Jesus' matchless name. Amen. Amen. You can have a seat. And this is our last sermon on this series of the church. And... I hope you've been enjoying our sermon series on ecclesiology. Essentially, this is what our study has been on, the study of the church. Um, one of the motivating factors I had in doing this study before we hop into the book of Romans in a couple weeks is that you look around, I looked around the landscape and a lot of the conversations that I have with people and the things that I see on social media regarding Christianity and articles I read and books I read, and it just becomes very clear to me that the church has a very low view of ecclesiology, the study of the church, or an incomplete view of ecclesiology. And so um, that was one of the motivating factors in to do you know, this sermon series. And so. I have been greatly challenged and convicted in many ways. I hope the same has been true for you. Um, and I hope it's our desire that because of this sermon series, our hearts have been drawn to worship God. At the end of the day, that's what the purpose is. The purpose of this sermon series, the purpose of any sermon series, the purpose why we gather together on Sundays is to worship God, to give him what it is that he is due. And we saw that read this morning in Psalm 145, where the saints would speak about the kingdom of God, its eternal nature, the, the 
um, divine, eternal nature of God, the King, and His kingdom. And I wonder how often, if Psalm 145 says that the saints will speak of the kingdom of God, how often are you talking about God's kingdom? How much is the kingdom of God um, mulling through your mind? How much of the kingdom of God is what is taking up residence within your heart so that when you open your mouth, right? Because the scripture tells us, as we were reminded this morning in our Sunday school, it's out of the overflow of the heart the mouth speaks, Matthew 15 tells us. So if you're thinking about the kingdom of God and your heart the, is, is uh, meditating upon the kingdom of God, then when you open your mouth, the kingdom of God is what it is that's going to come out and what we're going to talk about. And I want to talk this morning about the parallel that we see in Scripture between the kingdom of God and the church. Um, we have seen already, I've tried to give us biblical reasons as to why we should love the church. And primarily, the reason boils down to we should love the church because God loves the church. And to love the church is to not, when we're talking about loving the church, I'm not talking about elevating the church above our love for God. I'm talking about because of our love for God, our priorities are brought into line with God's priorities. And when we are loving God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, we are loving Him as our primary object of worship, our sole object of worship, hopefully, we are loving him that way, then our priorities begin to shift. Have you ever experienced that as you grow in your Christian life and you're growing to love the Lord more? You're finding that your priorities in life begin to change. Well, I'm no longer drawn to wanting to do these other things that I used to love to do and enjoy doing so much. They're just not so much, they're not so important. If the Giants win or if the A's win or the Raiders win or if the Niners win, it's not really as important as it used to be to me. If I get that, if I advance in my career field, that would be nice, but that's really just not as important as it used to be to me. And you begin to seek first God, you begin to love God with all that you have, and your priorities in life shift, and as those things are shifting, a love for the bride of Christ, the church, should begin to grow, because the love for the bride is what's primary to the Lord. It's what he loves. We've, we've studied that. And so I pray that we've been, we've, our love for the church has grown because our love for God has grown and our priorities are changing. We've seen that Christ has established the church, that the church is where he combines his truth and love, that it is a place of unification and edification as we use the gifts of the Spirit in our lives for the good of one another. The, places of, uh, the church is the place where we are shepherded. It's a place where we are preserved through discipline and discipleship. It's a place where we have been baptized by the Holy Spirit into Christ, into one body, and where we eat the Lord's Supper together regularly. And we've come to a place where it's hopefully it's virtually impossible to say, I love God, and not be able to say, I love the church. Those two things should go hand in hand. As you're saying, I love God, it should be clear from your life that you love the church as well because we've covered so many areas. Now, I, I know that there's a lot of areas, a lot of topics concerning the church that we haven't covered. We haven't covered the relationship between the church and the state. We haven't covered the relationship between the church and culture. Is the church's role to transform culture? We haven't talked about the relationship between church and Israel. I mean, there's all of these topics in the Bible that we haven't covered regarding um, the church. 
And, um, but oddly enough, when we get into the book of Romans, a lot of these topics will be covered. And so it's kind of saving some of those until we get into um, that study in a few weeks together. So we want to um, cover today the relationship between the church and the kingdom of God. Why in the sermon series on the church talking about the kingdom of God? Well, firstly, because whenever you look at, I mean, the overarching story of the Bible, I would say, is the kingdom of God. God's kingdom is what is on display and built and established in the book of Genesis. And it, the kingdom of God is how the Bible ends in the book of Re- Revelation as well. God's people with God in his kingdom. And, and, then, and then especially when we get into the New Testament, which we'll look at today, we see about how the kingdom of God is a, a primary role of, um, of focus for the New Testament church, essentially the church. Well, Herman Bavinck says that the church is the owner, the possessor, the preserver, the distributor, and the heir of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is the message of the church. The church has been given the keys of the kingdom. The church is what offers true worship in the kingdom of God. And the church is a place where we practice selfless love in God's kingdom. And we're going to look at those things um, individually today. So as we begin to get into this topic today, um, we're going to look firstly at the church is the place, the church preaches the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God has a, like I said, a central role and focus within the life of the believer and within the life of the church. If you turn with me into Matthew chapter 3, And we're going to look at a few verses here in Matthew as we look at the the kingdom of God being really the content of the gospel message. I've asked this question a lot of times in the past, many times in the past. When you're sharing the gospel with somebody, are you talking about the kingdom of God? Does your language ever revolve around God's kingdom? Because that's the gospel that Jesus preached. That's the gospel that John the Baptist preached. That's the gospel that the apostles preached was the kingdom of God. Look with me, if you will, to Matthew chapter 3. Matthew chapter 3, verse 2. Well, we'll begin in verse 1. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness in Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. His his gospel message was a gospel message of repentance. Why? Because the kingdom of God was near. And you'll see this in Jesus' language as well. You flip over to Matthew chapter 4, verse 17. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He's preaching and proclaiming what John had preached and proclaimed, a message about the kingdom of God. You'll see this again in Matthew chapter 10. If you flip over a couple pages, Matthew chapter 10, you see it in verse 7. We saw John the Baptist proclaim the message of the kingdom of God. We saw Jesus proclaim the message of the kingdom of God. And then in this passage in Matthew 10, Jesus sends out the 12 apostles, and he says in chapter 10, verse 7, and proclaim as you go, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This would be the message actually throughout the book of Acts as well. 
We see Paul proclaim in, in Acts 19, 8, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And Philip would proclaim in Acts chapter 8, the kingdom of God is at hand. For them, for the early church, for the, for the Lord Jesus Christ himself, the gospel message was a gospel about the kingdom of God. It was way, it, it encompassed, surely it encompassed the crucifixion, the cross of the king. It, it, it included the work that the king had done, but it included not just his work, but the king himself, his character, his person, his sovereignty, his rule, his decreed word. It declared his, um, the passing on of his proclamation of the kingdom of God to his people. And as the, his people would continue to pass that on to their people and to the disciples, that the kingdom of God is always central to the mind of the believer, that there is a king and he rules sovereignly over all things. And he was king long before any of us or anything ever came around to existence. And that he has a kingdom and he rules over that kingdom perfectly, sovereignly. And that he has citizens in that kingdom, which the church is, com- com- is composes the, the citizenship And that means that if there is a king and there is a kingdom and there are citizens and the citizens are called to live a particular way in this kingdom. And that's where really the kingdom of God becomes very practical and hits home for us. And I need to ask myself and look at my life. Is my life, my behavior, my living, my thinking, my desiring, my speaking, my doing, is all of that consistent with one who finds them, finds their identity within the kingdom of God? That which, is, that which is spiritual in nature and present now and today. Jesus would say in Matthew 12, 28, that his miracles, he was asked about his miracles, and he would say that his miracles were proof that the kingdom of God had indeed arrived. He says in Matthew, we would read it, Matthew 12, 28, but if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, and the kingdom of God has come upon you. The king had come. And so in many ways, the kingdom had come as well. And while the kingdom of God is spiritual in nature and takes up residence within, for, for a large part, the kingdom is invisible. It takes up residence within those who are citizens of it. I identify myself, I think of myself as one who is a part of the kingdom of God, and, and I long to be with my king, I long to, to see my king, and I long to worship my king and adore my king. But the, the physical presence of my king to be with me is something that I'm, I'm still waiting for, I'm still holding out to become a reality in my life. But I long for, I look forward to the day when he returns. When, when he returns and, and the sky is rolled back like a scroll and he appears with great power and glory and every knee bows and every tongue confesses that Jesus Christ is Lord, though, that's the day that I'm longing for and looking forward to. And, and because I look forward to that day, I think, am I going to be found to be a, a good and faithful servant waiting for my king today? Is my life going to be composed of grumbling and complaining because I'm not happy with what the king has decreed for me to have in my life now until he comes in his perfect glory? Or am I going to be, find, or am I going to be found to be a good and faithful servant, one who is awake, 
sober-minded, is aware of the days in which I'm living in, aware of the opportunities that he gives to me in places around me, is do I find my, my thinking about the kingdom of God in such real practical and consistent ways that it's beginning to change the way that I live and I'm functioning like a citizen of the kingdom and one who belongs to the king. And I've said before, I have no problem saying that the king owns me. In fact, I'm happy that he does so. And I think when we talk, when we, when we think about the kingdom of God in that way, we will talk about the kingdom of God as we present the gospel to other people. Paul would say, right, in Colossians 1, 13 and 14, you've been transferred out of the domain of darkness and transferred, um, you've been delivered out of the domain of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of his beloved son. We are citizens of the king of kings and the Lord of lords. We do realize that all of the earthly powers and rulers are still subservient to the one who has placed them there, regardless of how we think what we think of them and how much we like them. They are servants of the Most High King, and he has put people in places of position and power for his own sovereign decreed purposes. You really sometimes have to, to have a mindset of the kingdom of God in order to be able to be settled in some of those things in your mind. We're citizens of the kingdom of God. I like the way that J. Gresham Machen says it in his book, Christianity and Liberalism. Is there no refuge from strife? Is there no place of refreshing where a man can prepare for the battle of life? Is there no place where two or three can gather in Jesus' name to forget for a moment all those things that divide nation from nation and race from race? to forget human pride, to forget the passions of war, to forget the puzzling problems of industrial strife, and to unite in overflowing gratitude at the foot of the cross. If there be such a place, then that is the house of God and the gate of heaven, and from under the threshold of that house will go forth a river that will revive the, rear, the weary world. That is the place where the, where the church is gathered together, where the river of life, who is the Lord Jesus Christ, flows out into a weary and dark and sinful world. As we talk about, we have, we have people who don't know Christ, who are walking around in blindness, and the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers from seeing the glory of God presented in the face of the Lord Jesus Christ. In the church, we are people who have our eyes open. We see clearly there are two kingdoms at war with one another, a kingdom of light and a kingdom of darkness. And the kingdom of light ruled by the king of light rules and has won over all things. And now we are his ambassadors, ministers of the new covenant, where the river of life flows out into a weary and dark world to rescue those who are living in darkness. The gospel is all about the kingdom of God. It is about a proclamation of a kingdom that stands, that is firm, that is established and will never be moved. It is about a king that rules over all things, one against, one against whom every single person has transgressed against. As, as R.C. Sproul would say, we have committed cosmic treason against him. And we are the ones who have our eyes open to this reality. And so our heart goes out to those who are wandering blind and living 
in darkness and we proclaim to them a kingdom of God that is real, that exists. No, you cannot feel it. No, you cannot touch it now, yet. But wait, dear Christian. The day is coming. And when it comes, it will be unlike any other day. And the kingdom of God will be revealed in matchless glory and power. And its citizens will rejoice with joy unspeakable. The kingdom, the gospel is all about the kingdom of God. And the church preaches a gospel of the kingdom. Jesus is no longer here. He brought the kingdom with him. And so he had in his obviously sovereign wisdom and plan to give the keys of the kingdom to the church, which is our second point. The church holds the keys of the kingdom. If you see in Matthew, turn to Matthew chapter 16, and we'll see this in Matthew chapter 16 and in Matthew chapter 18. Jesus is no longer here and has left the kingdom in the hands of his apostles who lay the foundation for the church that is to come. And he gives to them the keys of the kingdom. And if you've ever wondered what the keys of the kingdom are, um, maybe you um, have looked in the Heidelberg Catechism. Heidelberg Catechism, question 83. What are the keys of the kingdom? Answer, the preaching of the Holy Gospel and Christian discipline. By these two, the kingdom of heaven is open to believers and shut against unbelievers. And we see this in Matthew 16. We see how the keys of the kingdom are composed of the gospel. And then we see in Matthew 18 how the keys of the kingdom are composed of church discipline. Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through 20 is this conversation, which we've actually referenced quite often in our study on the church. When Jesus came to the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. Right, and this is Matthew 16, 15. This is the question of all questions. But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered, and blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And we cover verse 18 in the first sermon in the series. You go on in, in verse 19, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged his disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. The context here of Je- is, is Peter's confession that Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is talking to Peter in the singular, but Peter um, exists as a representative of the edifice known as the church. That Jesus will build his kingdom upon. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, his confession of Jesus being the Christ, having the spiritual eyes to see that Jesus was no mere rabbi, no mere teacher, no mere man, but that he was the Christ, was given to him because the Father had opened up his eyes to see it and to understand it. Flesh and blood did not reveal this to you. No man taught it to you. You didn't even come up with it yourself, but it was revealed to you by the Father. And I tell you, you are Peter, you are a rock, you are a stone, but it is upon this rock, this edifice, 
this huge edifice upon which I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And in his confession of who Christ is of the, in the gospel, he tells Peter as a representative of the church that the church holds the key of the kingdom in the gospel preaching, in the gospel message. Those who profess to know Christ through the gospel are given entrance into the kingdom. And those who deny Christ or reject him at the preaching of the gospel are not admitted into the kingdom of heaven. The key is one of authority. He's saying he's giving, as Christ has come and brought his kingdom with him and he leaves, he gives his authority to the apostles as the representatives of the church. And the church holds the key of the kingdom by the proclamation of the gospel. In the proclamation of the gospel, of those who hear the message, bow their knee and they confess the Lord Jesus Christ. Then the, then the door is open and they are granted entrance into the kingdom of God. But if they reject the gospel message, then they are denied entrance into the kingdom of God in a very real and eternal sense. And not only does it have to do with the preaching of the gospel, but it has to do with discipline as well. Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 through 20 represents and gives to us the idea of the other key. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector or a pagan. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. Wherever two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. In verse six, so in chapter 16 of Matthew, he's talking to Peter in the singular. Whatever you bind and loose shall be bound and loosed as a representative of the church. But then in chapter 18, he makes it the you is in plural regarding church discipline if you go if one person is living in sin or has been sinned against someone and that person goes to them one-on-one -on -one and they don't repent then you take another person or two with you so that it may be established by two or three witnesses and if that person doesn't repent then you tell it to the church and if that person doesn't repent then the church regards that person as a non-believer as a pagan and they're making, a, they're making an outward decree that based upon this person's unwillingness to repent of their open known sin, they are being removed from the church. We are regarding them as a non-believer. They are being shut out of the kingdom of God. And that is what makes church discipline such a... Um, like an important thing, a scary thing, because like I said, when we talked about church discipline, you're, you're, the church is doing the best that it can to make a declaration regarding the state of someone's soul based upon their outward actions and behavior. And now we know that 
people's outwards and beha- outward actions and behavior can be inconsistent with the gospel, and yet they can still be a believer. And that's the point, right, of removing them so that they were removed from the kingdom of God. They're out in the kingdom of darkness. They're in the wilderness, and, they, and they're convicted. They're pierced to the heart, and, and they, they see their sin, and they repent, and they want to come back into the fold. They want to come back into the fellowship, into the kingdom, if you will. And the people who do that are shown to prove that they genuinely were believers and church discipline worked as it was supposed to work. They were removed, then they repented, and they were graciously brought back in and forgiven and loved on and built up and restored. But Jesus Christ gives the keys of the kingdom this authority to the church to preach the gospel and to practice church discipline. And, and it's important to realize that Um, When it talks about the keys of the kingdom and the authority that's given to the church, we need to realize that what we're talking about here is ministerial authority, not magisterial authority. So we, so the church has ministerial authority. We we are we don't come up with the truth of God's word and doctrine and scripture. We simply seek to lovingly and as um, accurately. teach and preach and enforce what we have been given in the word of God. It's ministerial in that way. It's not magisterial in the sense where I can bind someone's conscience um, to do something or not do something that exists outside of scripture. As your pastor and Dan and Craig, as elders, we do not have magisterial authority to tell you whether you have to homeschool your kids or public, let, let your kids go to public school. We, don't have, we do not have magisterial authority to tell you that um, it's okay to shop at Gucci or shop at Ross. We don't have magisterial authority to tell you what house you have to buy or what house you can't buy, what, car you kind of, what kind of car you must drive, what kind of car you can't drive. We have no magisterial authority. I mean, this became real for a lot of people in 2020 and 2021, right, where the church began, its ministerial authority began to widen and, and, and bleed over into magisterial authority to where churches are now talking about um, biblical love looks like a certain thing. Right? And if you don't do certain things, then you are no longer biblically loving somebody in a way that honors God. And this became an issue with masks. This became an issue with vaccines. This, became, this is always an issue when it comes around voting time, right? We do not have magisterial authority to tell you to get a vaccine or to not get a vaccine. We do not have magisterial authority to tell you to wear a mask or not wear a mask. We do not have magisterial authority to tell you who to vote for or not who to vote for. That is not what God has given the elders in the church the authority to do. Our authority in the church is ministerial as it is. God has given it to us and revealed it to us in this book. I do not go outside of the cover the front and the back cover of this book when it comes to commanding what it is that God commands. We can only make clear what God makes clear in the scriptures. That is the keys of the kingdom. And he's given it to the church as it pertains to the scriptures. But one way that this becomes very practical is how the church offers true worship. Uh, What is under the authority of the church that's clearly revealed in the scriptures is how the church gathers together to worship. 
which is our third point. The church offers true worship in the kingdom. Hebrews chapter 12, I think, is a wonderful passage regarding this truth. The church preaches the kingdom, the gospel of the kingdom. The church has been given the keys of the kingdom as it pertains to what the gospel is, the preaching of the gospel and discipline and how we are conducting ourselves and living our lives. Can't tell you what to do in certain areas, but we can always ask the question, why do you do those things? Because everything flows from the heart, including worship, primarily worship. The writer of Hebrews would say in chapter 12, verse 28, Hebrews 12, 28, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. Verse 29, for our God is a consuming fire. That therefore, in verse 28, would cause us to look back actually uh, earlier in Hebrews 12, verses 22 and 23. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God. He's speaking in present tense language and terms here. You have come. He's talking to the believers that are reading this letter, and he's getting them to try to get them to think along the lines of what it is that they have actually come to and the spiritual reality of their state and their life before God. You have come to Mount Zion. And this is for us to consider yourself that you have come, you have already come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Of Abel. Verse 23, he says, and to the, the assembly of the firstborn, the word there is ecclesia, which is actually translated in most other places as church. He's saying to them, to the believers, we want you to, I want you to understand that there is in a very real way, not fully, the kingdom of God has not been consummated in its finished product, but there is a sense in which you have come to Mount Zion, the mountain of, of God, the place where worship occurred and happened, to the city of the living God, to the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of our King, and to the innumerable angels and festal gatherings. Some of your translations may not say festal gathering may just say innumerable angels, but the word innumerable is meant to just communicate ten thousands upon thousands. You have come to something, I mean, he's drawing, he's, he's drawing their hearts and their minds and ours to something much bigger than ourselves. Consider what you've come to. You've come to the mountain of God. You've come to the heavenly Jerusalem. You've come to a place where there are innumerable angels. If you read the book of Revelation, you know, specifically chapter 4 and 5, you see this worship scene of the living creatures and the angels and the elders all proclaiming God's greatness and his power. You come to the assembly, the church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, those who are already there, 
the owls and the mics, those who are in the church, triumphant already, right? We're in the church where we would say church militant and that we're here still working away, laboring away at the kingdom of God. There's some that have gone and they're already, in, they're already enrolled. It's like if God were to take role in heaven and they would say, here, I'm in the church triumphant. You've already come to the assembly, the church of the firstborn who enrolled in heaven. And to God, the judge of all things and the spirits of the righteous made perfect. And to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that, spring, that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel, verse 28. Therefore, let us be grateful, right? That's the opposite of complaining, what we learned about this morning in Sunday school. Gratitude. The, the gratitude and thankfulness is what should be bursting out of the seams of the heart of every, every single believer, because of the innumerable riches and promises that are given to us in Christ, stored up in the heavenly places. We have so much to look forward to. So you're going without something for right now. I, I know those going without things can be very hard and difficult. I don't mean to minimize that. But you've got to lift your eyes to what it is that is coming. We have no idea how great that is going to be. And the writer of Hebrews is saying, just I'm trying to get you to think. Are you listening? Are your eyes open? Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. We are a part, our citizenship is in a kingdom that cannot be destroyed. It, it, its walls cannot be torn down. It cannot be invaded. There is no rust. There is no moth. There is no thief that breaks in to steal, kill, and destroy. That is where our citizenship is. When you go and... When you leave this earth, the knob is turned, the door is opened, and you are ushered into eternity of incredible bliss and, and happiness and glory forever. And he's saying you've received it. A kingdom that cannot be shaken. So what's the response? And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship. That God has an idea of what is acceptable worship and what is not acceptable. That we, we can't just do anything that we want and say, this is worship. Now, I understand, you know, Romans 12, 1 says to offer your body as a living sacrifice. This is your spiritual act of worship. And so I think that there, as an individual believer, there's a little bit more freedom because he's, he's talking about where's the heart oriented? Are you doing this for the Lord? Is it for his glory? Is it for the the, the advancement of the gospel, is it for the blessing of those who are around us? And so there's a little bit more freedom in that way. But when we're talking about corporate worship, what God, 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 is, God is serious and God is clear about what is acceptable worship in his sight. All throughout the Old Testament, well, I'll say this. So he goes on to say, right, offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. Number one, in our worship needs to be, it needs to flow from, spring from a position of a heart that is in reverence and awe of God. Like a holy fear of him. Fear of the Lord is this position of, 
of humility, a position where God is, I think it's clear as it's communicated in Proverbs. Proverbs always presents the teacher, God himself, as the one who is the possessor of all wisdom and knowledge and goodness. And the, the student, the son, the daughter is the person who is, uh, comes and is in a position of, you have all the wisdom, the knowledge, and the goodness. I am here as a student for you to impart unto me, and I will take it, and I will, I will bind it around my neck, and I will store it up within my heart. The words of wisdom that spring out of your mouth from your word, I will bring them in. And, and in order to be teachable, and in order to be in a position of being taught and receiving wisdom to such a great degree that whatever proceeds out of the mouth of the teacher, you're willing to make a necklace out of it, to bind it around your neck. You're willing to store it up within your heart. You have to be in a position of, of humility to say you are the possessor of all of that which is good and wise. I am simply coming to receive the, the crumbs of wisdom and godliness that you would be so good as to give to me. And whatever you give to me, I'm going to gather it up and I'm going to store it up and I'm going to embrace it and I'm going to think about it and I'm going to live it out because it's so incredibly valuable. That's how the believer should view themselves when it comes to receiving wisdom in the word of God. That's reverence. That's awe. And that's how we present, that's what's acceptable, worship to God. There is a sense where we are coming in here and we're to celebrate and to sing his praises for what he's done for us in Christ. But there is also a sense where I'm keenly aware of the fact that I'm doing something that I shouldn't be allowed to do because of my sinfulness. And it is sheer grace that he allows me to do so. And so that that increases my gratitude, but it increases my reverence all at the same time. I, I live in a fear and a reverence, but also a, that coexists with a gratitude and a thankfulness that I've been able to be brought to him. So let's offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and an awe, and awe for our God is a consuming fire. And this is actually taken from Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 24. And God is communicating to the nation of Israel in that passage what he calls acceptable worship and what it's not. And it's in that passage that he specifically says, um, he, right, he outlaws idolatry because God is a jealous God. It's in De Deuteronomy 4 when he's talking about what is acceptable and what, what is not acceptable in the sight of God. That he's saying, I am a jealous God. I am a consuming fire. I mean, we, again, the things we learned about in Sunday school this morning, how God passed judgment upon his people for they approached him in an ungodly way with grumbling and complaining. We come to him with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. God is serious about how he is to be worshiped. He declares how he is to be worshiped. And this really, in practical ways, affects everything. It affects, the, it affects the songs that we sing. Always thinking through, what are, we, what, what are we actually singing? What are the words that we are saying when we are gathered together? They have to be full of biblical truth. And they certainly can't be oriented at me, making much of me and encouraging my own feelings and Make, and, and, you know, meeting my felt needs. 
worship songs are, they're just that. Whoever the subject of the song is, is being worshiped. And so if I'm the subject, well, then I'm asking you all to worship me or worship yourself. But if God is the subject, then it's about worship to him. And that's why, that's why this stuff is practical. It affects worship songs. It affects the liturgy. It affects everything that we do as we are gathered together. And everything has to be thought through from the perspective, is this honoring to God? As this is what he allows and what's acceptable and what he's pleased with. And if the answer is no, or maybe, if it's no, it's like, we're not doing it. If it's a maybe, we're not sure, okay, let's go slow. Let's not do it. Let's pray. Let's think. Let's read. Let's study. Let's talk. Because we have to be serious. The church is a place that offers true spiritual worship in the kingdom of God. And it has to be what's acceptable in his sight. And lastly, the church is a place where we practice selfless love. The church proclaims the kingdom of God. The church holds the keys of the kingdom of God. The church is a place where true worship occurs in the kingdom of God. And the church is a place where selfless love is practiced in the kingdom of God. And I just want us to look at briefly Romans chapter 14, verse 17. In this section, Romans 14, 13 through 23, Paul is talking about not putting a stumbling block before one of your brothers not doing something that would cause them to stumble. And he says in, in 1417, the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. The, righteous, the kingdom of God is a place, it's not of eating and drinking, which are the two examples of personal preference that he's using in this passage. And it can be used of anything. The kingdom of God is basically not about you. It's not about your personal preferences. It's not about what you want and what you like and how you want things done. The kingdom of God is, it's about righteousness. Righteousness, God's righteousness. His character, his word, his perfection. The kingdom of God is about peace. Blessed are the peacemakers. The kingdom of God is about what makes for peace between us and God and between one another. The kingdom of God is about joy. And it's also about all of these things in the Holy Spirit. This is not a man-made, this is not a manufactured righteousness, peace, or joy. This is a spirit-empowered, spirit-given, spirit-created righteousness peace and joy that we have with one another. You notice the necessity of the Holy Spirit at work. You can try and do these things on your own, in your own power, in your own time. You'll do it for a little while, but then you'll begin to fail. For to do what God commands us to do on our own power is impossible. But God always provides what he commands. And it's through the ministry and the power and the working of the Holy Spirit that he does these things. So, we think about what it is that God says in his word regarding the, the church and the kingdom of God. Um, I've tried to, like I said at the beginning, convince us to draw our affections 
to the, to the church in a way that would show that it's our priorities are aligned with God's priorities. Because out of a love for God, I would then have a love for his church and I would then be devoted to it. And devotion to a church is very, it can look very practical. It means, you know, being here every Sunday, being here on Wednesdays, do, being involved in the fabric and the life body of a, of a church as much as you possibly can. It's not the casual, well, do I have time? Oh, yeah, I guess I'll go. How, how am I feeling today? Mm, I guess I'll be there or I won't be there. I mean, to be, to love the church is to be devoted to the church. And, and to be devoted to something is to, is to be a part of it. To be at it, to be in it, to be giving and serving and um, doing everything that we talked about in this sermon series. Um, this is the time where we're going to uh, partake of communion together. Um, this is the time for the church to be able to celebrate what it is that God has done for us in Christ. This is a time for us to remember that Jesus said that he will um, partake of that meal with us together again when we are with him in his kingdom. And so it's an opportunity for us to um, come to him and to look to him. This is an opportunity for worship. If you're visiting here today, and you know the Lord Jesus Christ by faith and by faith alone. Then, and you are a believer. You are a citizen of the kingdom, if I could use that language. And this is, we invite for you to partake of this time together with us. But if you are not, consider uh, what Jesus, the question that Jesus asked in Matthew chapter 16. Who do you say that I am? How do you regard him? Does he, do you know him by faith? Is he the King of kings, the Lord of lords? Is he the Lord and Savior? And if not, how do, you feel, how do you think that you're being made right with God? Based upon your own merits? Based upon your own goodness? There's only one way to be made right with Christ, and that is through the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. The gospel, we preach a gospel of the kingdom. And so we ask for you to consider that today, but to not partake of the elements. Um, so the elements are on the table behind you. You can grab those and return back to your seat and have a few moments of prayer, confession, meditation, and we'll partake of the communion elements together shortly.
this morning is from Matthew. Matthew 26, verses 26 through 29. And Jesus says, Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body, and partake of the bread together. It represents the body of Christ that was offered up for us. We think about the cross of our King. We think about our King being unjustly mocked, beaten, tortured, crucified. And at any moment, he could have called down a legion of angels to, to come to his aid. And yet, didn't he, he withheld so that he might make atonement for the church, lays down his life for his sheep. And his, by his body and by his blood, he has bought us, and we belong to him. And we're mindful of that as we partake of communion. We're filled, I pray, Lord, fill us with gratitude and humility as we come before you with reverence and awe and do which that is that which is acceptable in your sight as we remember you and look to you. And so we have those things in mind as we look at the body of Christ and how it was offered up for us crucified, but yet now risen, ascended, ruling, reigning, power and glory. And so we thank you, Lord, for that. And we partake of the bread, the body together in that way.